number two is where I'd like you to find your place in the scriptures. Exodus chapter number two. And here in Exodus chapter number two, locate verse number 11 to follow me in the reading. Exodus chapter two at verse number 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince or a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flock, father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered the flock. Now verse 23. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Now, Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses had his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
And he said, Certainly, I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said to God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them that the God of your fathers has sent me unto you, they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said to Moses, Thus shalt thou say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial unto all generations. Let's pray. Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the I am that spoke from the bush that burned yet was not consumed to your servant Moses. Bless us, we pray, in our fellowship together as we gaze upon the pages of your holy word and we attempt to find from you a message from heaven to speak to us in mortal time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I took the opportunity to introduce to you uh, the second book of the Torah. The Torah is the Hebrew uh, name for the law. The distinct collection of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible that the Jews called the Torah, which means law. This Torah is part of the Hebrew collection of scriptures that the Hebrews would organize it as the law, the prophet, and the writings. And they mark it as 24 distinct books. I mentioned we're using the same Old Testament that the Jewish people are using during their Passover. Uh, we have an English translation of their Hebrew scriptures. We call the Old Testament because it marks to us in our Christian faith the significant that God had a covenant with, with the Hebrew people that has been fulfilled and made new through the Hebrew Messiah, Jesus, to which now we non-Hebrews, also called Gentiles, can have a relationship and a fellowship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Old Testament for us is we often group it as the law, the history, the wisdom, and poetical books, and the prophets, which are sometimes called the major and the minor. And we mark them as 39 distinct books, 24 or 39, but it's the same. What we call First and Second Chronicles, they just simply call the Chronicles. What they call the Kings, we call the First and Second Kings. You get that? Some of the prophets, they group together. But it's the same scriptures. We're reading what has been given to us here in the first five books that's been attributed to Moses, the man introduced here in the second of the first five called Exodus. This Exodus draws its name from the idea of the going forth. I mentioned to you last week uh, that the book in chapter number one bridges Genesis's narrative. Genesis can be divided into two sections, chapters one through 11, which is the origins of everything including the origins of the Hebrew people, which is then explained in chapters 12 and chapters 12 through chapter 50, showing the pilgrimage is of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph becomes an extension of Jacob. And there's an explanation as to how Jacob ends up in Egypt, because Egypt was not part of the covenant. They were promised 
among many things in Genesis 12, a name, a nation, a Messiah, a blessing, and include prosperity and a land. But then they end up in the land of Egypt. And the latter parts of, of the book of Genesis explains why they end up in the land of Egypt. And Exodus chapter number one highlights that and bridges us that Jacob and Joseph brought the Hebrew people into Egypt for survival and prosperity. And according to the scriptures, 400, 430 years later, here we come in Exodus chapter number one, and it's time for them to go forth. But the problem is, is that their pilgrimage in Egypt, which first was to save their life and multiply them into many people, had become a relationship of bondage with the Egyptian people, particularly under the pharaohs, to where now they were enslaved and their lives became marked with rigor and bondage and oppression, even in the genocide, as we saw in chapter number one. And so the book of Exodus is divided into 40 chapters. Chapter one is the explanation as to why we need an Exodus to begin with. And chapters one through 15 is the highlight of the deliverer and the plagues that God would use to deliver the people. And chapters number 16 through 20 is their journey and their presentation to the mountain of God where God would give the law. And from chapters 15 down through 40 is how they can have a relationship with the holy God. And chapter 40 of the book of Exodus ends with the presence of God descending upon the tabernacle and the people having this relationship with God that God had promised them way back in a covenant that he made with Abraham. It was a covenant of circumcision. It would distinctly mark their race as the Jewish people. And the Jewish people still exist today. They exist as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they mark the descendancy through the circumcision, the covenant of circumcision. But Moses gave them another covenant, or rather God gave them another covenant through Moses, a distinction of the law and the order. And not only did the Hebrew people exist all over the world, keeping the covenant of Abraham, distincting themselves as God's descended people from Abraham, but they exist also as a covenant of people to give us the law of Moses. And so even today, there are Hebrew people all over the world keeping the Passover, which is part of the distinction of the law of God given to the Hebrew people in the days of Moses. For the Passover marks the 10th plague of Moses, the death of the firstborn. What an incredible thing, isn't it? What an incredible thing that we can trace through human history 4,000 or more years, I don't know, rounding it off, to a Semitic man in the Ur of the Chaldees, uh, an idol worshiper, according to the book of Joshua. And God revealed himself to Abram and bring forth a people that would not only keep a covenant of circumcision to mark themselves as descendants of Abraham, but would keep a covenant of law to make us realize that God is a God of law and righteousness and holiness. We are who we are as Americans in great debt to the Hebrew people. If they ever remove the barricades in Washington, D.C., and all the troops, and you ever get the freedom to go and visit your city again, because it's your city, you, you pay your taxes, and you get the opportunity to go into the Supreme Court building for a tour, I've never been there, it's just kind of on the bucket list. From what I understand, carved in marble are all those reliefs of the great lawgivers to which we appreciate the concepts of liberty 
and self-government, and right up there is a carving of a bearded man in a robe holding two tables of stone. I wonder who that man is. You know who that man is, don't you? Yes, that's Moses, the great lawgiver. And so here in the book of Exodus, we get the opportunity to appreciate Moses, the great lawgiver. Even as I've introduced him at reading chapters 1 last week and chapter 2 into chapter 3 this week. The goal of this delivery, this Exodus story, is in chapter 3, verse 8, to deliver them out of bondage. It's implied, according to chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh is not going to cooperate with this. Pharaoh is going to say, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? Pharaoh said, I'm the law. I'm the authority, not your God. Yes, Pharaoh, you may be the authority before the Egyptians, but the I am is the authority of creation. So it's to deliver the people from bondage, chapter 3, verse 8. It's implied that Pharaoh is going to stand in the way. And so chapters 7 through 10 are going to be God's answer to Pharaoh's who is the Lord, to which then we come through the Red Sea unto Moses' song in chapter number 15, where the people will, in chapter number 19, verse number 17, take a look with me, I think it's worth seeing. 19, verse 17. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. To meet with God. That's wonderful, isn't it? To meet with God. And there where they meet with God is chapter number 20. Chapter number 20, as I mentioned last week, are famous scriptural sayings such as, Thou shalt not. You recognize those? You might have those engraven on a plaque hanging somewhere within your house, placed on a little laminated card within your purse or wallet, pressed on a bookmark in your Bible right here at Exodus chapter number 20. You might even get the opportunity to go to some public place where there's a monument of granite or some type of stone where these are carved, the Ten Commandments. How unique is it that Exodus is 40 chapters, begins with their enslavement in chapter 1, it ends with God's presence in chapter 40, and you go right to the middle in chapter 20, and there's the Ten Commandments. This is an incredible book, is it not? Right there in the middle is the Ten Commandments. If we want to be free from bondage, there's a message here, then we'll be free from bondage when we embrace the reality that God is a holy God who judges humanity, who does offer forgiveness, who does save from the consequences of sin, but He will hold humanity. He will hold us accountable for sin. It's the only way we can actually be free James Madison, one of the founders of our nation, said in 1778 that we stake the future of our nation on the concept that we would follow the Ten Commandments. James Madison, we would follow the Ten Commandments. And so while Patrick Henry can say, give me liberty or give me death before the Virginia Convention in 1775, you're not going to have liberty if you don't have restraint. You don't have restraint. And when humanity can't live by such restraints, 
then humanity can't live free. Almost on cue, we now get to turn the news cycle on and watch about people being murdered in Atlanta and people being murdered in Boulder, Colorado and, and, and someone being arrested with guns in Atlanta. And it's almost on cue, isn't it? You know, people were murdered last year too. Didn't make the news, did it? The same week that there was the murders of the Asian spas in Atlanta. It was terrible, by the way. There's nothing redeemable about the evil that's occurring. But the same week, it didn't make major headline that they arrested a man from New Jersey and Missouri for murder as he was a fugitive. Murdering, I think, five people whom he claims he actually murdered 15. They're investigating that, and they caught him with a murder weapon still in his car. It was a hammer. I think they call those assault hammers. Any weapon, any object you take and you kill another human being with, it's called assault. But he had a hammer. He had a hammer. But almost on cue, there's political things that need to be accomplished with every crisis of humanity, and so it'll run in constant loop on the media before you to get your attention to get your attention off some things that are happening so you won't hold people accountable for doing their job of working to guarantee our civil liberties and our civil rights. So here it is, the story of how liberty came to be and how story, the liberty came to be here in our great democratic republic is this concept that we would govern ourselves. But when we're not governed, there needs to be consequence. The ultimate consequence is God. God will judge humanity. But there's a consequence within righteous law, and that is righteous law would also judge humanity. And so Pharaoh has a judgment coming, does he not? Ultimately, Pharaoh has a judgment coming from God. But Moses, the lawgiver, will call him to account and warn him that there is a judgment coming. Back to, back to chapter 3, where I was originally reading. Just as I brought you through the book of, of Exodus. Through chapter 3 is the entire narrative unfolding. It's a, it's a duplicate of what I just showed you as we went from chapter 1 to chapter 40. Look at it again in chapter 3, verse number 8. God says to Moses, I am come down to deliver them. Verse 8, to deliver them. Verse 10, last sentence, out of Egypt. To deliver them out of Egypt. So that, verse 12, you will serve God upon the mountain. Reference to Sinai, where the law will be given. However, verse 19, the king of Egypt will not let you to go. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand with wonders. Isn't that incredible? Right there, the whole book of Exodus unfolds in chapter number 3 as God tells Moses, right from the burning bush, what his strategic plan is. And Moses needs to get in line with God's strategic plan. However, there are obstacles in the way. There are obstacles in the way. And Moses even highlights them, those obstacles, right within the way. In verse number 11, Moses says to God, Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh 
and bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. The first obstacle that Moses can think about that he wants to bring to God's attention is himself. Moses says, I'm a problem in the scenario. I agree with Moses. He is a problem in the scenario. What kind of a problem is Moses, this deliverer? Now, before I highlight the problems of Moses, keep, a, keep in mind that I greatly respect and esteem the man Moses, credible person in the scriptures among Moses. We get to see in the life of Moses a man who lives 120 years. It's an incredible life to see unfold. And it's an incredible study, not only of what God can do, but it's an incredible study in leadership. For there, you search human history, there, there is no human leader that would rival Moses. It's a story of Moses' life from rags. Remember in chapter number one that he was born to a Hebrew slave woman? It was under a time when an evil pharaoh had decreed a genocide against Hebrew male children. In chapter number one, it talked about how when baby Hebrew boys were born, they were to be thrown into the river and drowned. This was a population control plan. They were to be drowned. However, Moses' parents feared God and they feared to lay a hand of assault upon a child. And so they hid the child as long as they possibly could. The midwives had been ordered to carry out this plot of genocide, but the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, they just couldn't, they didn't have the conscience to participate. So Moses is alive as a baby. But the time comes when they can no longer hide him from the authorities, and so they've got to cast their bread upon the water, and that's their baby boy. They make an ark out of reeds, they pitch it with a tar to make it waterproof, and they line it with rags. And then they cast their child out into the water push their baby out into the water. What kind of anxiety do you think Moses' mother was experiencing? What kind of anxiety was Moses' father experiencing? Not only for the child, but for themselves. If they were implicated in something like this, disregarding this tyrannical, murderous orders, what could happen to them? They had real anxiety in this rags moment of life. However, Moses was rescued by a princess of Egypt. And this princess ultimately would adopt him into the, her home. And he would become, therefore, royalty, riches. And the New Testament even talks about how that Moses had rights to the riches of Egypt. What would it be like? To have gone from such a rags story to such a riches story. Moses had in his riches moment, according to the book of Hebrews 11, opportunities for the pleasures of sin. Incredible wealth beyond estimation. Not only insulates you from so many of the problems us common people have to bear. Like, what will I eat? will I clothe myself with? Where will I pillow my head? You know, those are the, those are the problems that many of us here in Whitehall, we, we have to learn to deal with. It's called life, right? Moses never had those problems. He never had to consider where he'd pillow his head, what he would eat, where he'd live, who he would be. He was royalty within Egypt, and that brought pleasure. 
It's called in Hebrews 11, the pleasures of sin for a season. He had opportunity for that. However, as we read in chapter 2, Moses had, and this is a character flaw within Moses, he had a problem with his temperament. If you follow the life of Moses through from the beginning into the end, and it goes well into the, into the Torah, into the latter part of the book of Deuteronomy, and this is what makes Moses such an incredible opportunity to study one of the greatest leaders of human history, Moses had a flaw in his temperament with anger. The first time Moses' flaw with anger is introduced, it's in chapter 2. What right did Moses have to kill an Egyptian? You can't read chapter 2 and justify what Moses does because Moses can't justify what he does. Did you read that with me? Verse 11, It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren. He looked on their burdens. He spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew. Verse 12, Moses has a problem with what he's about to do. He looks this way and he looks that way. All right? When you were younger and foolish like me, and you go into the grocery store and mom says you can't have candy, and mom walked away because she was busy, so what did you do? You looked this way, you looked that way. Put the candy in your pocket. Why did you look this way and look that way? Because you knew in your conscience, God puts a conscience within us, right? We are fallen creatures of God, but we're still God's creatures, and we still have a conscience, and we can either destroy that conscience and, and descend deeper and deeper into human depravity. It doesn't matter who you are, what religion you claim, you can destroy that conscience and sink deeper and deeper into human depravity. Or the law of Moses can build that conscience, like the Ten Commandments. And now, therefore, you won't look this way and that way. And therefore, that's a simple explanation, humanly and socially speaking, how people without religion, without Jesus, can still be upstanding human beings and still not murder and still not kill and still tell the truth. They have a conscience, and when that conscience is continually bolstered with good, righteous standard like the Ten Commandments, they can become free people and you can live together peaceably. Which is why we need these scriptures proliferated within our communities. If you want to be free Americans, then your neighbors need to embrace these kind of concepts that there's right and there's wrong, that there's truth and there's error. But as soon as we embrace concepts that there are no absolute right and wrongs, but it's all relative to the culture and to the moment, situational, then things spin out of control. Things spin out of so much control that you can end up with I mentioned a 13-year-old last week who was arrested here in the city of Whitehall, pulled over by the police. 13-year-old stole a car, who had a loaded gun in the car, in the front seat, and the police had to deal with that. Pray for our police officers. They're under a lot of pressure, aren't they? Because you and I, we cannot be free and let our kids... You can't walk your dog down the street if a 13-year-old driving a stolen car. Might end up in the front room of your house. Jim and Maul had to deal with that. It wasn't a 13-year-old. It was somebody driving erratically at a high rate of speed down their street, lost control, and put the car in the front room of the house. Or, like was in Washington, D.C. last week, 13-year-old and a 15-year-old with 
a taser, uh, attempt to carjack an Uber driver, and the Uber driver lost control of the car, flipped the car, he was ejected, the Uber driver, and he's dead. You have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old who are now looking at all the charges which include murder. Murder. We, we are not prepared for what's coming upon us when the criminal justice system has to deal with 13-year-olds who are murderers. We are not prepared for what this means. Now, our criminal justice system is not prepared to, to handle 13-year-olds who are murderers. Remember when I warned you over the summer that vigilanteism will rise in our country and it will not be good. Vigilanteism is not justice. Vigilanteism always brings some form of injustice because there is no due process in vigilanteism, but it will rise in our country because common people can't sit by and let this happen. I'm not endorsing it. It's a warning of where we're going as a nation of lawlessness that's being hidden in some kind of humanitarian values. But when Christianity has been replaced with secular humanism, and people want to boast that they're humanitarians, not Christians, and you end up with people out of control, and now you have some difficult humanitarian decisions to make. How do you seek justice for a man who had immigrated into our country, like the one in Washington, D.C.? He's, he's, he's an Uber driver because he came, can't remember what African nation, came to America trying to give his children a better future. Can't remember how many children he had. I'm afraid to say I only read the article once. Five. And now you have a father out of the lives of his children because of a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old? How do you deal with a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old who cognitively can't process mentally what they've done? Their brain is still forming. They've got to take responsibility for it. But there are other people who bear the blame for a 13-year-old and 15-year-old. It's the American people. Now, you don't bear the blame. You have your own 13- and 15-year-old. Don't get the wrong idea. But collectively... Collectively, we are in the long game of a series of decisions of abandoning absolute truth and allowing humanity now to create the truth that suits their moment. Right? We're losing our liberties for a reason. Liberty cannot coexist with insecurity. Right? So when your neighbors are insecure, your liberties will diminish. My good friend Jay Forster used to be a member of this church. He's out, he lives out west now. But him and I got a good laugh about a shotgun that his dad had given to him, Model 12 Winchester, beautiful gun. It has interchangeable, interchangeable barrels that you can break down for a full choke or a, a no choke. It's a great gun. And you break it down, and it goes into a beautiful leather case. It stands about yay high. It's oblong. I know the gun because uh, I've shot it many times. And uh, we got a good laugh, as Jay talked about, particularly when Homeland Security began and T TSA and all of the requirements before you can get on an airplane. They're looking at how much liquid you carry and all of that. You know what I mean? 
how much liquid and whether or not that razor comes out of the package, all these things that have changed. And uh, Jay and I, was he chuckled when he said, you wouldn't believe it, but uh, in 1970-something, I can't remember, he said, after my parents had given me that gun as a gift, I flew out west to duck hunt with it. I boarded the plane carrying that gun in my leather case. And as I boarded the plane carrying that gun in my leather case, the stewardess said, Sir, for better space, we should put your trombone in the closet. It's in a leather case. He said, I looked at her and said, it's not a trombone, it's a shotgun. She said, oh, we should put it in the closet for better space. That's how he used to fly on planes in America. He used to carry guns on planes in America, and no one batted an eye. You old-timers... Don't take this disrespectfully. Some of you tell me you used to not lock your doors. I used to not lock my doors on my car, but the police are telling us, lock your doors every night. They call it the 9 p.m. routine. They put it up on Facebook all the time. Did you check your doors? Lock your doors. All every, lock your doors. Because we're trying to deal with the crime issues. And you got to help us, they're saying. You know what that is? Insecurity means lack of liberty. That's what that means. People used to tell me they used to leave the keys of the ignition to the car in the car because they didn't want to lose them, right? Some of you remember that. You had, a, you had a key to your car. You didn't want to carry it in the house and risk losing it, so you left it in the car. That makes perfect sense. Are a few of you out there old enough to remember when you just took the crank and you cranked it like that? Anybody could have started. Was that? No, that was not Linda. You know you're sitting in Josie's old seat. I used to tease her that same way. I love it that you're there. Perfect. I used to tease Josie because Josie could fight back, and I know. <laughs> I know you can plant one square on the jaw when it's time. I love you. But you know how things have changed, right? Moses, by the way, let's get back to him. Moses, by the way, He's a descendant of Adam and Eve. He came through Noah and all that Noah went through. Just like you and me. He's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you remember all that I mentioned from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was a lot of problems in those people. That's because we're born with a sin nature and we need to be rescued from it. And Moses has not been rescued from his sin nature right here. And his natural disposition, according to his temperament, to be passionate about things. I don't know if he had red hair or not. Maybe he did. I didn't have red hair. I just lost it. But I can, I can relate to Moses because I, I have a leadership quality that he had, and that's to be passionate. The problem is, is sometimes you rely upon your base nature and anger can cause you to say things and do things that does more destruction than what you intended to do. So Moses looks this way, he looks that way, he, he, then he kills the Egyptian. Now I know his conscience has a problem with this, and the law of his community has a problem with this, but believe it or not, the Hebrew people have a problem with this too. Because when Moses intervenes in a dispute among Hebrew people, they say in verse 14, Who made you the prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
they had a problem with what Moses had done also. And that's because Moses is not, you know, law enforcer, judge, and jury, executioner. He, he can't fulfill that role. It's not right. And uh, they know that. The Hebrew people know that. And so as he intervenes in these two Hebrew men who are, have a strife, and uh, one of them says, what are you going to do? You're going to do street justice like you did to the Egyptian? We all know about it. Moses is not only ashamed, but now he's terrified. And uh, he's got to flee. And he goes into exile in verse number 14. Because in 15, Pharaoh puts a bounty on him. So the first problem that we have here to God delivering the Egyptian or the Hebrew people from Egyptian bondage is Moses, who has character flaws. It's a story of rags to riches to exile because he goes into the into the wilderness. Forty years, by the way, was how old he was when he goes into exile and he'll go into exile 40 more years. But then that last 40 years, he becomes a statesman. The life of Moses is a story of rags and riches to exile to statesmanship to honor, real honor. And that's why I say I don't say it lightly about Moses and his character flaws because he does become the man of honor. But he becomes the man of honor not because of Moses. He becomes the man of honor because of the grace of God. Amen? Numbers chapter 12 says... My servant Moses, who is faithful in my house, with him will I speak mouth to mouth. Be afraid to speak against my servant Moses. Numbers 12, that's when his older brother and sister had a mutiny against him. And God says, wait a minute, Moses is my man of honor in this situation. But he goes from rags to riches to exile to statesmanship to honor. That's in a nutshell. But back to these problems that Moses wants to highlight and then back to what we need to do, and that is cease the sermon. So Moses says back here in chapter 3, verse 11 of Exodus, who am I? That's a good question. You're just an ordinary human being from the dust of the earth with the fallen nature of Adam, but God is extraordinary, Moses. But Moses goes on further in verse number 13 when he says, they're going to ask me, what is your name? They're going to ask me, what is your name? And what is that? It's, a, it's an absolute confusion. They did have a confusion in their theology. They had a confusion in their theology because they didn't have a text for their theology. There was no written Bible. What did they have to teach their children from one generation to the other? There were no written scriptures. What they have, they have orally speaking. But God is going to use Moses, and he's going to inspire Moses to give them the Torah so that the next generation will have the Torah. And in their Shema, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter number 7, they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and teach this now from one generation to the other. Teach this. So that every Sabbath in the synagogues, the words of Moses are being read. That's a wonderful thing to think. That to Moses, it's an obstacle. They're, they're going to want to, they're confused about you. This is an obstacle. Of course, another obstacle is that Pharaoh's not going to allow this to happen. 
Pharaoh's going to be in the way. Moses knows that. God says that. But look at this in chapter 4, quickly. They will not believe me. Chapter 4, verse 1. They will not believe me. Unbelief is a real problem. I, I agree, Moses. I feel that in my own soul. When I feel the obligation to represent Jesus at home, to, to family, in common places, to associates and friends who embrace me, in the marketplace with strangers who are friendly in conversation, the opportunity to represent Jesus and the witness of God from the Scriptures. And I can feel that hesitancy that they won't believe me. They won't believe what I have to say, God. Okay, in your point, I bet there was a time you didn't believe either. Was there? Yes, there was. There was a time when you didn't believe either. I mentioned our missionary in Taiwan, John Walls, and I was so blessed this morning when I read his little post on Facebook. He had up, I can't remember the Taiwanese name, but he said, this is a young man who wants to start a church, and he briefly gave a little bio. I met him when he was 16. He didn't even believe in God. He came to know Jesus after six months. He has studied the scriptures. He's so faithful, and now he wants to pastor a church and preach the gospel, and he's 21. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? I was blessed to read that because then I thought, wait a minute. I came to the know the Lord when I was 15. I didn't believe in God. And people worked with me and discipled me and taught me the scriptures. And when I was 22 or 21, right in that area, I was asked to come here and preach in this church. I didn't believe either. But now all of a sudden, I got this little voice in my back of my head saying, why bother telling them they won't believe? Well, neither did I. It's a character flaw in me, that doubt. Character flaw in the people of Israel. Moses says they won't believe me. Another one is, verse number 10, I am not eloquent. Verse 10, I am not eloquent. Moses says to the Lord, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow speech, slow tongue. Oh, but he's quick temper and fist. I know, Moses. God says, who has made man's mouth? 11, the dumb, the deaf, the seeing, the blind. It's me, the Lord, the Lord says. Oh, this is so practical to me. Is this practical to you? Or am I the only one getting talked to this morning? Amen? Boy, I thought it was... I thought it was tough on me to write all this on paper. I feel like I'm on the hot seat to say all this publicly. I'm so embarrassed. I'm glad my wife and my children aren't in the room. My son's probably watching on the internet. I hope he is. I talked to Josiah the other night on the phone. I said, son, do they have a chaplain or a church? So I met the chaplain. He said, dad, they've got a thumb on us. We can't leave our barracks. Can't really do anything. He said, but I got a laptop and I got the internet for my work. I plan on watching the service on Sunday. So let's pray he gets to see this. Oh, that means he's watching. Oh, now I feel so embarrassed. Yeah, and then he goes on and he says in verse 13, Watch this, Moses said, Send, I pray thee, by thy hand, whom thou wilt send. It's almost as if Moses is saying, Our Father which art in heaven, thy will be done as long as it doesn't conflict with mine. 
right? O God, the great voice from the burning bush, send whom thou wilt. Send whom, Lord, whomever thou wilt, please send, just not me. Oh, I love you, Moses. Thank you for being such a wonderful example to me. Because I not only see these flaws in Moses, and boy, are they ever, you know, the Bible is painfully honest with its heroes. That's because God's in the business of saving sinners from their sin, not embellishing humanity in its fallen nature. God is the hero of this book. Amen? Jesus is worshipped for a reason, not Moses. Which in John chapter number 8, this was a problem between Jesus and the Pharisees. They said, we are of our father Abraham. Jesus said, you ought to be of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that's what I'm of. And later on, they would say to him, well, Moses says this. We are Moses' disciples. Well, you need to become a disciple of Jesus. Because Moses spoke of Jesus. Hebrews, please. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament to finish. Hebrews chapter number 3. So yes, Moses is a man of honor, and for a good reason, according to Numbers chapter 12. But what makes Moses this man of honor is we understand that within the narrative, he had to be redeemed from his sin, and he fought this in his sinful nature. But God is a sovereign God, and he said to Moses, I'm doing what I'm going to do, and Moses, that's why you exist. You exist for me. Now chapter 3, verse number 2 who was faithful to him that appointed, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house is worth more honor than the house. Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses was verily faithful in his house. So, yeah, Moses, a man of honor, a faithful man. But notice, as a servant, and a testimony, a witness, a witness of Christ. Christ, verse 6, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So in summation of chapter number 3, verses 1 through 6, is this point here that Moses is an admirable servant of God, but he is a servant of God, pointing and testimony to the person of Jesus Christ. See, that was what the first century Jewish people, religious Jewish people, who rejected and resisted the claims of Jesus as Messiah, that was their struggle. Their struggle was, is they had centered themselves on Moses in honor and couldn't see that Moses had presented to them the path to the Messiah, who was Jesus, who, is, who was esteemably a dishonorable individual. He was such a lowly Galilean, carpenter, itinerant prophet of Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? John chapter 1. Anything good come from Nazareth? That was their attitude. Their, is it called an implicit bias? When they heard Nazareth, they automatically judged him. Oh, we know what kind of people that is. Oh, no. Wait till you see Jesus, the last Adam. Take on temptation and resist it. 
Wait till you see Jesus, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Touch the leper, cleansing. Give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speaking to the dumb, even raise the dead. Wait till you see Jesus. Cry out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abba, Father, with great drops of blood. All things are possible. Let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, Thou wilt be done. There is faithfulness, constant display. Amen? Ultimately, God will tell Moses, speak to the rock, make it flow forth water. You remember what Moses does? Like a baseball with his assault rod, you know? Takes his assault rod in his hand, looks at the rebellious murmurers in the desert. He says, you rebels, do we need to fetch you water from this rock? And he swings and he strikes that rock. Nothing happens. So he strikes it again. That's what I always do with my hammers. I say, piece of junk, and I kick it. It just wells up in me. Moses struck the rock a second time and the water flowed. Job done. Right? And God says, Moses, because you did not sanctify me in the sight of the people, you struck the rock when I told you to speak to it, you will not be entering the land of promise. You must die in the wilderness. Jesus, he did not disobey the will of God, ever. Even to the very end. But he died in a wilderness upon a cross. Forsaken, denied, lied about, died nevertheless. Why? He didn't deserve it. As a substitute for our sins. As the perfect Passover lamb. See, even in the Passover holiday... The Hebrew people were commanded to take a spotless lamb, an admirable lamb, to sacrifice the lamb and apply the blood over the entry of their house so that the death angel would pass by and not judge the firstborn. And they were to keep that feast forever as a memorial to how God delivered them from bondage and death through death. Jesus is our Passover. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He is our Passover. Second, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He is the lamb sacrificed for us. With no spot, no blemish. And by his stripes, we are healed. Well, friends, bow your head with me. Linda, would you please come to the piano? If you're here today and you've not received Christ as your Savior, Let me invite you to come to Jesus.